This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with me and Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, uh, we've got Maximilian Strixner, uh, who's actually called Maxi. So Maxi is additive manufacturing engineer who actually, well, did uh, some work at AOS first. It was a nice place to write your thesis. Then he worked at uh, doing light weighting and automotive for a company called ADAG. Then he worked at AP Works uh, as a project engineer and application engineer. And then he worked uh, for a while at AMCM. That's the, the part of AOS uh, that makes really large or custom 3D printers. Now he's a senior additive manufacturing engineer at something called the Exploration Company. So a lot of experience, a lot of experience in the engineering thing. So uh, a lot on the engineering AM side. And what I think is really cool is that uh, Max is one of the few people that kind of got started as an AM engineer off the bat. He didn't have 10 years of, you know, running CAD and, 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 and CNC and to switch. He's natural. Like the, the, uh, he's like a natural kind of, uh, like a, or 3D printing first engineer. So that's kind of going to be interesting, I think. Different a first gen. A first gen 3D printing engineer. Yeah, what is it? Grew up with So Maxi, welcome to the, the 3D pod. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. And thanks also for the nice introduction. And as you said correctly, it was straight to the fun. Um, started with 3D printing. That's correct. Okay. And do you think that, guys, because like the funny thing is that it's come up, uh, it's come up like over a half a dozen times here. Everybody's saying, oh, the new the new generation of engineers are going to come with new ideas mm-hmm. and they're going to know about, about more about additive. Is that true? Is that, Do you feel that additive or is, is additive more like a specialization for you? Is like, you know? I think it's I think it's kind of true. It's um, a different way of approaching things. So you're not a lot thinking about constraints that you actually have in, in manufacturing. So for additive manufacturing, you have that um, often Lee calls design uh, or freedom of design. And um, actually, I think with that mindset, you kind of have a new approach and you do not think in constraints. So if you start thinking like that from the beginning, I think that changes some something in your mind. That's true. Okay, so so you, you got to write your thesis, I think your bachelor's thesis, already at AOS. So that's a huge opportunity, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, right? Oh, yes. That was cool. And so what, I don't know what you can talk about that, but like like in those beginning days, like what did you what did you learn from AOS? And what was it like? Because I, what I like about AOS is that there's so many people with so much tenure. There's so many people with so much experience. There's guys with like 12 years or 20 years at AOS. And was it was it like that working there? Like you saw so many experienced people around you or... Exactly. So actually, I did my thesis um, in the um, application department so or um, uh, application and consulting. And just as you said, US is a, is a great place to work. And there's a lot of really, really experienced engineers. And they have been doing that topic before anybody actually was talking about it. So it was great to experience um, all, these, all these great people there. And my thesis was actually about um, qualification process in in additive manufacturing for metal processes. And it was about um, creating some geometry and some some workflow that can actually qualify a certain process or a material on a machine. And um, I was supervised back then by a very experienced um, consultant who did um, quality management for a long, uh, long um, period of time. 
and I could really learn learn a lot from those guys and I'm still in contact a lot with them and still do learn from it so as you said uh, yours exactly EOS is really a great a great place to start and also provides a platform to young people that they can grow and learn and get into the industry yeah and well I can imagine definitely for a German student I wouldn't know where else I'd want to go uh, in Germany like SLM maybe or some other things but Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, if I want to work for AOS, what, what do I need to do? Do I need to get excellent grades? Do I need to, like, what are the things that really get me noticed there, do you think? Mm, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the grades. I think if you if you show great interest and you show the right mindset that you might um, fit into the team and that you actually want to change things and try something new, then I would say it's not all about the degree or or the grades that you have. I think that that what you bring in terms of of your effort and your mindset is is more important to that, I would say. Of course, you you took this expertise and you work for uh, ADAG, right? ADAG is uh, ADAG is probably... Adoc, I think it's called, um, is probably not really well known, but it's like it's like everything. Like, it does like everything a car company does, except for be a car company. Essentially, it's like it's like it's, <laughs> it's like a complete outsource. You could go there and you could say like, okay, I'd like to build they build me a factory, build me a production line, uh, develop mm-hmm. a car for me. Uh, everything. It's insane, right? So, so you had some, exactly, and then you got to exactly, work yeah. at. Uh, it deserved to be well much better known, actually. And, um, I really like them, but um, and and you got to really apply it to automotive there, and uh, and and on the one hand that sounds really exciting. On the other hand, that you know, I think that could also be a disillusionment that you're coming with all these wonderful ideas, and some guy's going to tell you that's wonderful, but I need it to cost thirty four euros. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's quite a bummer in the automotive industry. That's that's completely right, and that's also something that I experienced then at at AppWorks. Uh, the price pressure in the automotive industry is is very hard, and um, that is especially a problem when you have a technology that is firstly new, so you need to qualify parts, and secondly is by nature quite expensive. I mean, if you look at the machines, if we take the um, example of laser powder bed fusion, which I have mostly worked with, the machines are big. They consume a lot of electricity. They um, consume a lot of metal powder, which is also um, expensive. They um, consume inert gas. They uh, consume uh, uh, they consume actually a lot of experience and uh, manpower of experienced people that are also expensive. So if you all bring that down to part cost, the part will maybe be more expensive than a part that has been done with a traditional manufacturing and that has already been qualified. That is exactly the problem in in that industry. If you have to qualify that, and if you have to compete against that price pressure of other parts, then you might have a hard time, which we sometimes actually had. That's true. And if you're looking at these kind of compete against that pricing pressure stuff, like you know, do we need? Because there's two things going on at the same time. One of those is kind of more incremental improvement. We're saying like Solucon, or you know, people are like mm-hmm. AMflow looking at like, hey, we can make things go around the factory a little bit easier, right? Uh, where other mm-hmm. people are looking at like better powders that can, you know, aluminum that runs faster in the machine, kind of these incremental improvements, right? And then there's other mm-hmm. stuff that's more pie in the sky, but maybe revolutionary, like twelve laser machines and and Surat and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know other kind of like more uh, future like laser array printing and stuff. Do you think we can get there just through optimizing existing processes, or do we need like a complete technology revolution? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very good question. I think so. Companies like like Solucon that you talked about are companies that are basically growing with a technology. So Solucon 
um, is a company that is um, in, into depowdering and that depowdering you need because of the AM process that uses powder. So it is actually growing with a technology. And if you incrementally improve that technology, then all the surroundings can also improve with that technology. So I completely agree with that. Um, the question is, how far can we actually go with these incremental changes and innovations and how can actually the next radical innovations look like? So I know that in the industry, big topics at the moment are, for example, um, laser beam shaping and um, closed loop control. So basically the first concept is to to change the, um, the spot geometry, to, to shape the beam basically in, in a way that you can um, adapt the melt pool that you want to create. So you can, for example, um, improve your speed and your productivity. I think that would be a very radical innovation and that's going on at the moment. I know that um, every of those big uh, machine OEMs like SLM, EOS, Trumpf, a lot of them, um, I think all of them are working on it. And this is, I think, really one of the innovations that are coming in the next five years. And also this um, closed loop control where you basically you check all the time your parameters and your conditions in the process and you actively engage in the process um, to, to make the best part that you can actually get. Of course, you also open new obstacles then like how do you actually qualify a part that was um, manipulated during the printing? Do we need um, more parts to qualify that? Do we need to have the second run, the same setting again? So these are actually questions that need to be solved. But I think that the radical innovations in the industry for laser powder bed fusion, at least, will be in, in that direction. That's that's my personal opinion. I, I like that you brought up beam shaping because we really haven't discussed it. Because, but it's it's mm -hmm. it's so, I think it's so obvious that we don't talk about it. <laughs> but but just yeah. Like, yeah yeah so the idea is that you have a certain set of parameters out of the box which are meant to work mm -hmm. out of the box and if you want to kind of well we have kind of kind of because there's highlighting right there or the sky writing uh sky writing mm -hmm. in, in, in just regular polymer uh powder bed fusion was already an innovation that's probably mm -hmm. what people know as well of, of you know at one point we noticed that a lot of the parts at aos looked a lot better than a lot of the parts of 3d systems and sky writing is one of these innovations and you know, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, it's optimizing your parameters to work together in concert in a way that allows you to go around the corners faster than you normally would have or something or go exactly. around the corners coherently, mm -hmm. right? But it looks like a lot of people, that looks like an optimization thing, but it has huge impacts, right? It has like really considerable impact because you're actually going, yeah, it's kind of like if you would have like a car and it goes 120 kilometers and all of a sudden with the same car, with the same material, everything, you all of a sudden find out how mm -hmm. you get it. To 200 kilometers right so it's it's yeah. much about like with everything you have already in-house you're having this huge huge advantage with your existing kit so that's why i think why it's so revolutionary right yeah exactly i mean it's in some way it's all optimizations uh, i mean you're using maybe the same laser maybe the same optic systems maybe it's only on the software side well, well not only i mean uh, software side is, is very significant and will also develop a lot but yeah for sure it's it's a lot about innovation it's a lot about um optimization in that area and i think there's still um a lot of things to come um to be honest not the best process um expert these are just mm -hmm. two things that oh. i know that are developing um at the moment and i'm actually very much looking forward to to see how that is going and maybe to use it in a few years so i'm actually very excited about that is that is that where you see the biggest um places of improvement through that optimization or do you think that there's something that's lurking out there that can be tackled 
Mm, I would say these two these two options are already quite effective. I cannot right. think of any of something like radically new at at the moment. Um, if I would know, I would maybe be very rich, um, yeah. or I would, uh, <laughs> or I would the uh, tell the guys that they can work on that. Maybe I don't right. know. But um, <laughs> honestly, if we can make like great improvements in these two areas, I think that will be a leap in the industry. Also, another area that has to do with this is like what started with, well, Scamaloy, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And also uh, what I call stupid aluminum, uh, ASL, TEM, and MG with that one. And um, <laughs> uh, so it's the idea that new materials, perhaps with different uh, grain size or different, made in different ways with different uh, technologies, can be run faster on the machine, right? And that uh, I think is also. That's something that, that is also like revolutionary, but people didn't realize because we always thought that, mm -hmm. that there was just titanium. We ran like titanium and that was it, you know? And so I think also new materials development could also spurn a lot of growth in combination with the beam shaping and combination with these optimization things. Yes, obviously. Um, Scalmaloy is actually a great example that you say um, because these are materials that are especially engineered for the technology. I mean, you have a very new technology. You're basically you're melting a metal powder uh, into a shape that you that you want into a desired shape, and that's that has not um, been done before. I mean, it has been there for some decades, but it's still quite new and still quite new in the um, people's heads. So it totally makes sense that you not only um, develop new processes and new machines. So you only uh, you also develop uh, new materials that are especially engineered to fit that process. I mean, if you if you have a look at the process, there's a basically a high um, high energy source, the laser, um, for example, and that is melting metal powder, and so you have a lot of heat concentration and stuff. And obviously, you wanna have a good basis for that. So a good material base that you can actually um, create the desired shape that you want. And it totally makes sense that if you create a new process, you also create, or if you create a whole new technology, it also makes sense to not use a material that has been there for a long time, but maybe engineer a new material that is even better. So that, um, to me, makes a lot of sense. And also the structures that the, can be produced on the metal as well can be interesting, right? Because you can be doing weird new combinations of material that will result in a slightly different configuration than like an atomic structure of that material which gives new properties exactly and not only the material actually also by playing with um, the process parameters you can actually um, change the material properties so if you're using always the same parameter then you always can accept kind of the same or similar um, results but for example if you if you adapt laser parameters if you use um, less power for example or more speed i don't know anything then you can by that actually adapt the density of the material, so the density and the porosity in the same term. And that is actually quite um, interesting because that means then on the other side that you can choose in which area you might want to have which um, porosity and in uh, in another area where you need more or less porosity, you can you can choose the other one. So basically by changing your process, you can also change the properties of your parts. You can adapt it to some some conditions that you um, that you actually have uh, want to have it's um, obviously not that easy but it kind of is possible to to change the density and to um, to change the porosity in the process in in some way by adapting the process parameters so like for example like the cars often modern cars have what uh, crunch zones or crinkle zones you could theoretically 
have that be as part of the material rather than as part of the design of the part itself. Could be, could be. Yeah, if you want to have a uh, very high porosity in one area of the parts, um, then you could, and then could do low that. And that could, other, be, yeah. could be an option. Yeah, low porosity um, or a higher porosity at some other point. If you want to make the parts weak at one spot and make it, um, make it like a good density on the other side, um, that is one possibility. I, I like that idea, Max, of having the, the, the material kind of be really withstand to a lot of force and then crumble above a certain impact, right? Yeah, I mean, that's already that, an existing idea that they do in cars now. It's just that I, no, but I like, think yeah, they're, in they're one material, machining right? it that it. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rather, yeah. <laughs> I think Fun that's stuff. really cool. Okay, okay. So uh, the Scalmoy is nice because, of course, Scalmoy is done by uh, well, what I've always called AP Works, but apparently it's App Works, uh, which I didn't know <laughs> until Max had just said it. But you worked at, at, at uh, App Works later on, and that was, well, that's kind of a. Uh, a part of well, that was a kind of like a part of Airbus that is a, a 3D printing service and uh, that makes aerospace mm -hmm. parts and stuff. So, what was that like working? Well, that's another new industry for you. That was again like yeah. more aerospace. What was that like? Um, it was also a great place to work, and yeah, it was also a great experience. And um, I was able to to grow a lot in that company actually. So, I started as an application engineer. They did a lot of data preparation, so all the CAD design and like orientation in the build space, assigning parameters and and, and that basic stuff. And a lot of people actually think that um, since AppWorks in some kind belongs to Airbus, they are only operating in the aerospace um, industry, which actually is not the case. So back then, when when I worked for them, um, I mainly worked in the in the automotive and in the in the um, uh, motorsports industry. So we did a lot of Formula One parts and um, automotive. So, for example, we also did um, that Bugatti exhaust tailpipe from Titanium. That was actually my main project back then at Appworks. So it's definitely true. There's a lot of aerospace and um, even more to come at the moment. I think. But also a lot of um, automotive. Um, I don't know if that is still the case, but back then I was actually kind of exclusively working in the automotive industry. So there was a lot of serial productions in aluminium, scale alloy, titanium mostly. But yeah, yeah back to your question. Also uh, a very great uh, place to work. Back then we were like a very, very young team. Um, all of my age, and that was already some, some years ago, we had quite some responsibility actually and some trust from the team and we were able to to work and grow a lot in that team it's also also a great um, environment yeah. yeah and you think it's i was just thinking about this that okay we have these specialization mm -hmm. like aeronautical engineering automotive all this kind of stuff mechanical engineers can go to multiple directions if they want but typically you years ago you would see like somebody joining the automotive industry maybe you know going there for the, like their whole career and and i think now if you're specialized in additive you can pretty much work wherever you want to i think uh, at the moment because uh, there's a shortage of these people do you think that's an advantage working in all these different industries or um that's definitely true for am what you said you're kind of flexible so you can work in the automotive industry you can work in in aerospace you can work in medical one thing that is um, common is Obviously, the technology—it's the same technology that you use for all these um, for all these industry industries. But what is very um, different is actually the qualification levels and the qualification processes. So, if you want to produce a serial part for for automotive, you have a very much different um, certification process or qualification. I don't know what the what the right words is. Um, then, in the aerospace or in the medical 
um, industry and that also influences a lot the time that it actually takes to produce a part or to to develop a part and then to deliver it the final part so in, in the medical industry it can take years like a very very long time in the uh, aerospace um, sector especially in the in the rocket propulsion sector which i work in now at the moment these times are very much um, smaller and the very very easy answer to that is actually it's how much people are involved so for medical purposes, obviously you work on people. You or yeah, you work on people, and um, obviously the products that you produce will somehow get in touch with people. So you want to make sure that these products are actually good and not harmful. In other industries, for example, the the rocket propulsion, if no people are involved, so for unmanned vehicles, for example, you don't necessarily touch people or transport people, and that makes it actually a lot easier to to qualify parts and um, easier and faster and that's that's for sure but also what i think is is uh, is kind of interesting is the fact that because of this right and because also i think the business model and the types of businesses that use uh additive manufacturing for space right now they're burning cash they need to make parts fast as possible they're, they're they want to make things very very quickly and want to iterate much quickly and they're able to as you say because of the the qualification uh and the standards they're up against um is it going to mean that, that the space guys are always going to be on the cutting edge because they're always going to adopt the newest materials and the newest machines much faster and much more broadly than other industries that are going to be more careful? That's a good question. Mm, I think it also depends a lot of um, investment money that is actually around. So that's a new space industry. I think there's a lot of, a lot of money laying around and a lot of um, venture capital going into that industry. And that kind of gives the players in this industry the freedom to try out new stuff. If you're working in a company or in an industry where the price pressure is really hard and you need to get to to results very fast, you might not have the same possibilities. If this will still be in the case um, in a few years, I don't know. Maybe the um, um, money and investment situation in that sector also changes. But I think that at the moment, there's quite some advantage. If I look at um, the American rocket companies, for example, SpaceX is developing like everything in-house in there together with um, Relativity and Blue Origin, I would say very much leading in 3D printing also because they're just trying out new stuff themselves. They have the money to just take their time, develop new processes, whole new materials, new machines even and just put it on their site. And I would say that is likely, most likely one very big advantage of, of those companies to, to make leaps that might not be possible in other, in other industries. Uh, and also, they're very weird, these companies. Right? They're very strange. I've worked um, like, uh, no, seriously, just supplying them is terrible. They're, they're way more paranoid and way more secretive than anyone else. And at one point, I was mm -hmm. making a material that had to go to one of these types of these new space companies, and they wouldn't tell us what the machine was. And I was like, but you want us to make a material, right? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, but we can't tell yeah. you what the machine yeah. is. And I'm like, but how am I going to do this, you know? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, they're really weird. And But you're right. They have like yeah. no time whatsoever and tons of money. And it's a really weird combination mm -hmm. compared to just regular businesses, you know? Exactly. I made the same experience, actually. So I also worked um, together with some of them at um, AMCM. And they 
want to keep their secrets. They have a lot of money and they are um, also willing to, to spend it and to develop stuff in-house. But then they also want to secure that knowledge, which is kind of understandable. But I, I feel just the same. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit weird to understand sometimes. But yeah, I think they know what they're doing. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, then Max, of course, like worked for AMCM. AMCM may be not so as well known as, uh, but it's a part of AOS. And it's essentially the part of AOS that, that makes custom machines and make custom 3D printers uh, for people that are very, very demanding applications. I think it started a little bit with Cookson wanting to do gold printing and uh, Phillips Medical, later on the Dunlee wanted to print tungsten. And AOS realized there was like, you know, there's all these exotic people out there that had very exotic wishes that needed really custom systems. Mm-hmm. And it started that i think it transformed a little bit into catering a lot to this new space community because they wanted these really giant parts out of copper right so that must have been a lot of fun for you max right yeah it definitely was so as you said um very correctly amcm is using the eos platforms that's mostly the eos uh, m400 and the eos m290 so that's two two metal printers of eos they're really doing customized solutions for for customers and one very prominent solution um, that is in the market is, for example, the AMCM M4K. And that basically uses the M400 um, platform. It increases the um, build platform cross-section to 450 times 450 millimeters and the total height to 1,000 millimeters. So it actually can can build parts up to up to one meter. And um, when I first heard of the company, which was um, pretty early actually after they were founded, I was thinking, who needs that big of a machine? And um, actually, those were quite different times. By now, it's um, quite common to do these um, rocket combustion chambers in one piece with uh, integrated cooling channels and stuff. But back then, I think it was not too well known. But if I look at the market now, so all these um, yeah, rocket producers have their own machines. A lot of them actually have AMCM machines. So um, two, two companies to, to mention is actually a launcher in, in America and, and Orbex in, in Europe. So that's um, two that are actually published. But I can tell you there's a lot more. And um, yeah, the market is really growing into that direction. And AMCM is, is benefiting a lot from it. And I mean, it, it makes totally sense. If you look at the parts, they are quite big and they integrating a lot of functions in just one part. Back then, before you actually could print these combustion chambers in one piece, you had a very, um, yeah, you had a very complex workflow to actually create those parts. They definitely have been, been done before traditionally, but in a, in a very much different way. Um, through a lot of uh, machining processes and now you actually get the possibility to print that part in in one piece integrate all the functionality that you want and with um, amcm machines also in a very great height and um, by now i think every other machine manufacturer um, like slm also has understood that there is a market for that for very big parts it doesn't necessarily have to be rocket combustion chambers. Um, I think that AMCM is very much focusing on that market. But there's a lot of other markets as well. So as you said, it's it's also very, very interesting company to look at for that. Yeah, and these rocket combustion chambers are one of the most interesting applications in that area. So talk to us a little bit, because it sounds kind of, on the one hand, it sounds super obvious, right? Okay, I have a rocket. Combustion mm-hmm. is good. 
So I want to make mm-hmm. a better combustion, you know, <laughs> but, but we're talking the cost <laughs> of getting one of these machines and, and print the print times on these things are insanely long, right? So the cost of having a mistake in the design or the printer uh, would not be, it wouldn't make sense for most companies. They just wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do this because um, it would just cost you so much money. If you, if a build failed mm. that, 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 yeah, it just wouldn't be viable. So we're talking about, a, yeah. like, we're talking about like, several hundred thousand dollar print jobs right this doesn't work for most people mm-hmm. so why is it so important like first off like is it just is because on the one hand i can understand yeah just to answer why is it so important you need to justify it in some kind of way it only makes sense if the parts you want to produce may it be one part or may it be many parts in one build platform the cost of that part must actually justify the machine so if you want to produce a part that has a value of only three dollars, then it does not make sense to uh, to buy that um, big machine. Um, obviously, you 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 need to justify it. So um, that's that's definitely one point, and it needs to be there needs to be a real business case for those machines and for those parts. I mean, rockets rocket companies are like the perfect example for that because they have very um, very expensive parts and very high value parts that they can integrate a lot of um, functional steps in just one part. And um, also they do not produce a lot of parts. So if one fails, and as you said, you have to restart the whole thing, it might actually be not too dramatic. Obviously, depending on your schedule, it can be dramatic. But if you have to restart the whole thing and you just want to produce one part, it might still be kind of okay. So it's it's definitely a... A hard um, decision, yeah. yeah. And the logic is well. Okay, you mentioned functional integration, right? Uh, I think mm-hmm. behind that, again, you, you've said it, but you haven't said it. Is the fact that that the lead times of making these things the traditional way with all these castings and all these press, processes that was just enormous, right? It just didn't work. The mm-hmm. old way of doing business, we launch a new rocket every four years or something, didn't make sense. And lead times of six months and all that just didn't make sense. In in, in in the world of the new space kind of world. And then we're also talking mm-hmm. about part reduction, which you've also kind of mentioned, where we're going from 80 parts to three. Uh, and we're also like, the idea is that as one form, right, we're able to iterate that form quicker, right? We can make a new version faster. And that's also yep. key for these guys. But, yep. you know, is it really that, that, that and of course, lightweighting, that optimal shape, right? That's obvious, right? Um, but Mm-hmm. Is it really that easy? Because to me, if we have this holistic rocket, which is supposed to be three parts out of 80, you know, alterations to it could have all sorts of effects that we could not have anticipated, right? Uh, if something is a bracket and a heatsink, right, just changing it in a kind of like, you know, just changing it a little bit could have a big effect. Is it really? So to me, for designers to be able to follow this now hyper complex part, right, mm-hmm. uh, would be really, really complicated. It's definitely it's it's not easy. Just as you said, um, well, you have a, now you have a great technology. You can produce a lot of parts that have not been possible before. But that's not necessarily means that it makes your life easier, especially right. not for the designers. So at the moment, I'm looking at my monitor background, and that is actually the Hyperganic Aerospike that we did back then um, with um, Hyperganic and AMCM together from Copper. And that part is actually, it's very complex. And I had a lot of issues actually processing the parts with um, with the software I had and, and getting it on the machine. So um, the workflow back then was that Hyperganic produced the part um, with an algorithm, sent it to AMCM, and we were then 
I really need to say trying to process the part and to get the part on the machine, assign all the parameters and stuff. And that was like, it was really, it was really an issue because the part is very complex. If you make an STL out of it, um, it gets even more um, complex and like a very, very big file size that you can hardly move the part in 3D. So it was actually quite a mess to, to get that part, um, to get the part going. I mean, in the end, it turned out so well and it was, it's great. And it's, uh, it's, it's been shown on, on every trade show since then. But okay. to answer your question, Actually, it's just uh, not... one question. Yeah. One question about the errors. Sure. Like, how do you get the powder out, Mike? How do you get the powder out? <laughs> Very good question. Very good question. Um, well, we used the, we used the Solocon system, the biggest one of them. And it, it was a great challenge. So as you know, copper has a high density. That means um, the part was very heavy. You have a steel platform that is very heavy and you have a lot of powder actually trapped in the channels and in the inside of the aerospike. So it means you have a crazy heavy part. So we actually balanced it through the hole, got it into the Solocon system and it spent really days in there. It was, it was not constantly running, but um, we had like a really, it was, it was tough and it was quite an effort to re uh, remove all this powder out of it. And basically was um, to use the Solocon um, algorithms to get the powder out, then manual powder removal by um, pressured air. Then you try to get manually um, out the rest of the powder. And yeah, it definitely is a great effort. And back to the question that you had before, that is also one new obstacle that you actually open when you choose that new technology. So it's not just you send the parts to your 3D printer, it prints, you post-process it, and then you, you deliver it, and it's, it's all very easy. That is not the case. And it's good that you say that because um, depowdering definitely is one of the major challenges, especially if you have complex parts um, like this with uh, internal structures. That's quite a challenge. Yeah, I, I'm happy. Uh, this is something happened like when I uh, used to work at Materialize. And one of the things you can do there mm -hmm. is you can join the production floor for a couple of days to kind of figure out what the guys are doing and there's parts. And it was like one of my first parts ever. And it was like a part from uh, an object machine. And then it was like I mm -hmm. had to put in a blasting cabinet and I was cleaning out. And if you know an object, like cleaning out the material is kind of like it's like hair gel. It's like, kind of like a hair gel kind of material. And then all of a sudden, I was mm -hmm. like, I can't get the hair gel stuff out of the part. <laughs> and I was, like, <laughs> I was like, trapped, right? And and that yeah. and that's such a happy thing for me because that was something that wasn't talked about. It wasn't a big deal before, and now it is. And I really like this really an unfortunate uh, time on the the floor where I wasn't able to do it. It was like literally impossible. And uh, and I, mm. that really got me into thinking about this powder removal is going to be, especially if you look at these mega complex shapes, is going to be hugely important. I totally agree. That is one of the, one of the key points. And also one thing that you should consider very, very early in your design process, because as you just said, when you have the finished part in your hands, maybe even already heat treated, and then you recognize you have some powder or some um, residuals left in your part, then it's too late. And if you have a very expensive part, that could actually mean that um, the part is lost. So if we take the um, example of a rocket combustion chamber or an um, injector head, you have um, internal cooling channels. And these channels are used in operation later to actually cool the part from the inside. So it's uh, small structures that are going through the thin walls of the part. And um, to guarantee the functionality of the part, obviously you need free channels because if one channel is blocked at some point, then the cooling fluids, which um, is the fuel a lot of times, 
um, cannot go through that anymore. So you lose the functionality. So you, so the part is actually not cooled um, anymore uh, enough. And that actually might really le uh, leads to a melting of the, of the part in operation. So um, yeah, it's, it's like really mission critical or really critical for the quality of a, of a part to, to have a correct depowdering strategy. That's um, like, yeah, that's very critical. We talked earlier really quickly, we kind of went over like that these prints take a really long time. How long do one of these prints for like the aero industry, all metal, you know, take? Is this like a month to print this or is this like a week? Depends um, 100% I mean, yeah, on the geometry, that. obviously. If it's higher, <laughs> then it takes longer. But um, these rocket combustion chambers usually are not below five days, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Kind of. Yeah. And the yeah, aerospace think about plenty of time it. for was, something to go wrong. Yeah, a lot of time, a lot of time to for something to go wrong. Yeah, even if there's um, if there's a weekend like in a between, power outage then you're. I can yeah. tell you, very nervous on the weekend. You look on the machine, you check the software <laughs> all the time on the weekend, and you you pray that Monday morning when you go into the into the production hall that there's a green light on the machine. If not, then you know it's not going to be a fun week. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then you were about, about to say, like how long it? did the aerospike take? Um, I can't, I can't remember precisely anymore, to be honest, but it was <laughs> not a matter of days, more a matter of weeks. That's for sure. And think about the machine cost is like now we're, we're coming from 700 K up to 3 million, right? Three and a half million. So losing a week build time <laughs> you know, is, is, is just on the depreciation on the machine, just on the cost of running cost of the machine is going to be so expensive. And then you have these these, exactly. these schedules, right? That's scary. But I, th mm -hmm. I like that Maxi came up with this idea. That, well, they the mentioned this idea of the software. I mean, we had a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of longer even, we had Alyssa Ross here from Metafold, and they can basically stream really complex uh, geometry, right, to printers. And they were thinking of using this to like for SLA and stuff. But isn't it better for us? Like we're seeing these procedural tools and these kind of much more advanced kind of modeling tools and generative tools, you know, come up with really complex geometries. And then we're trying to get mm -hmm. to this really crappy way of, of, of describing them using triangles, using STL, and then we slice them. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't something like, if you look at Metafold, for example, if, wouldn't it be something like, don't we need something better to better describe mathematical things directly to the printer? Because like, we're just going to run out of that. This is not going to work in the future, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, honestly, STL must die. It's uh, it's just if you have a, like a very complex part, and that is exactly the issue that I described um, earlier with the aerospike, and you wanna you wanna um, divide this very complex part into a lot of small triangles, then your file size gets very big, and it gets very very hard to um, to process. In my opinion, so I'm not a software guy, so I cannot finally uh, make a good uh, make a good point of that, but I think that we shouldn't switch between softwares all the time. So at the moment, for example, you create a part in CAD, then you export it in some file formats, may it be a step or STL, it can go into some simulation, then you get a file out back, then you go into the next software, then you go to your data preparation software, you position the part, you do all the supports, you again export it to the machine. I think that it should be in one workflow. I mean, a lot of people have, have said that already. It's not a new idea. But in my opinion, it is just too complex at the moment and it makes too too many problems. And not a, a lot of software companies are actually working exactly on that um, solution. But in my opinion, it just does not make sense to have 
very advanced uh, technology and companies like Hypergenic, for example, which is the perfect example. I mean, they don't even touch the parts in 3D. They do not do cats. They program or they, they code an algorithm that is doing the parts for them. And then basically you have a 3D model and you have a nice picture of that part again. And then you send it somewhere else and you cannot process it anymore. So that can, in my opinion, just not be not be the way to go. There needs to be something more advanced in the future. And I hope that this is one of the main topics that will improve in the in the future. Yeah. But that, that's something interesting you said that. But we're seeing something interesting happening on software. We see Toffee AM, right? That's one example mm-hmm. of this. But there's other people doing as well. There's, there's Novaneer as well, which is very new. Uh, there's these tools that say, hey, you know what? We can do design of experiments. We can do material characterization. We can do uh, hatching strategies. We can do uh, uh, part optimization all in this one tool. Right, so we're mm-hmm. seeing like kind of like an advanced tool where all of this simulation to design to optimization all end up in the same software tool, and that exactly would do what you would say, and that would just save you so much time waiting for all sorts of stuff to boot up as well, uh, and so much time in switching, and also just like allow for much more complicated geometries even. But what I love about this is that if I have a tool, that and the the, the the core value creation for AM is happening inside of that tool and not in AutoCAD or not in uh, Hyperganic or whatever, that in that tool is where my cutting-edge geometries, my better rocket engine gets created. Yeah, that's a beautiful business model, right? Then I know I'm going to sell that for a lot of money or I'm going to flip it to, to, mm-hmm. to Siemens or whatever. So I, I do think that, that your wish is definitely going to come true on that because that's, that's just irresistible as a business. I think the same. And I also think that, so I completely agree, but I also think it does not necessarily have to be the same tool for every process step. Maybe just the interfaces need to get better. Maybe we need to decide on only a few format file types that are like really suitable for for the processing which um, stl a lot of times is is not in my opinion so either we have like a very holistic platform that can do all of it and makes that really makes life easier or the interfaces get better so that could be that are the two options that i see uh, well, that's good and what we haven't what we haven't talked about by the way is the exploration company which is where you're working right mm-hmm. now because that the exploration company first off it's <laughs> it's it's uh I, I what i like about well first off it's a european new space company there's not a lot of them mm-hmm. right you mentioned orbex mm-hmm. there's maybe a handful and compared to all the money in america and all the big companies in america it's nice to see european companies do the same thing and it seems to be a little bit more open and kind of cuddly than the other ones right so tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah well that's that's kind of true so the um <laughs> the motto or the yeah the, the basic goal of the company is to democratize space access and um that's what we're trying to live so what the exploration company is actually doing it's trying to to give access to space to everyone to private companies so if you want to send something to space that could actually happen. Um, Yours or Max through the exploration company, that's uh, that's likely to happen. And what the company is actually doing, it's producing or it's developing at the moment space vehicles um, that can go to, to orbit or also to the moon. So it's two different kind of vehicles that can do different missions. And there's Nix Earth. So the, the vehicle is called, the basic vehicle is called Nix um, after the Greek goddess of the night. And that one vehicle will do operations in orbit. So that can, for example, be um, microgravity experiments. So 
the vehicle carries experiments that are executed in orbit. The data and the experiments are then collected on Earth again. Or you have um, the moon vehicle, which basically will go to the moon, either to the surface or to the space stations around the moon that are being um, established. Um, the Lunar Gateway as the most prominent one um, that's all in like heavy development at the moment. And it's big visions at the moment, but there's a there's a big market I've uh, I've learned since I um, joined the company, and it's it's very exciting about the about the stuff that will happen in space in the next years actually, and we're like very close to to getting into a new era of of space operations there, and we wanna be a big part of the human uh, the European contribution to that. So that sounds very very exciting, but uh, and it's also but are you? But what about this cuddly thing? Is it is it really about democratizing? Because like that's what a lot of the American guys say as well. How in what way are you more open than these other firms? Let's say. Mm, good good question. Actually, I think that we are kind of open to to share stuff that we produce and um, and and give access. So, for example, um, the first three D printed parts that we we did now it's it's like um, we are doing a material characterization in um, in Cornell seven eighteen, and we did that with our partner um, Toolcraft in Germany. And actually, our CEO um, Elen was not hesitating one second to to publish that we're doing that and also what we try to do. And when the results are here, I'm also pretty sure that we um, again will publish that. And yeah, I think we just want to to contribute to to the industry, to to space um, exploration in total. And I think it is also one advantage that we are not coming from additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing for us is what it should be, actually. It's a tool to do stuff. And since it is not our core business, we're also not very much into protecting everything that we produce. So... I'm pretty sure that um, also the the uh, results that we will produce in the future we will give uh, give access to people and I don't know if that is more cuddly or not um, than than other companies but yeah I think that whole democratizing stuff is to be seen as holistic not only for space maybe also for for other technologies for software also there's a lot of uh, things planned maybe that's the reason why you well, you've heard that it's um, that way, but I can really say that we're open to to sharing, to democratizing. We're actually also working with a lot of universities and institutes um, like DLR, for example. We also revealed that we're testing some stuff with them in the last weeks, and yeah, I think I think that's about it. Yeah. What I also like, and and and, and because on one hand, there's a lot of companies that are, seem to want to do everything, right? Or want to mm-hmm. have like a closed system, like an Apple type of approach. Um, there's other companies that seem to be working together. I think I'm trying to think of this. There's this German company that sold like uh, brackets and solar mounting brackets for uh, for um, for cubesats and stuff, right? There's also another one, DHV or something like that. They do this as well, right? And and they're becoming more like a kind of part supplier, kind of like a shop where you could just buy this to accelerate your own production. I think Swiss Two Twelve used to be my example of like, hey, you could just buy the waveguides from these guys, right? Now they make their own satellites mm-hmm. and it's confusing. Do you think that we're going to get, because it's kind of weird that there's, on the one hand, these guys would want to do everything themselves, but there's also people that are making, like becoming like component suppliers to the space industry, which to me sounds like a really wonderful business. I think we do not want to do anything or everything ourselves. Like SpaceX is doing, the basic goal of the company is to to develop the vehicle that is then able to 
do missions and operations. How we do that does not mean necessarily that we produce anything in-house, um, everything in-house. I think that will most likely also be not the case. The strategy is really to find the best manufacturing technology for every component of the whole assembly um, doesn't necessarily mean that we do everything in-house, doesn't necessarily mean that we buy everything. I think in the end, it just needs a good strategy to also select which technology and which manufacturing you want to have for which component. And the thing that you do in-house or that is your product and that's, um, well, basically it's, it's all about building the vehicle. And so we see that as our product and that we're gonna send to space. How that is then actually assembled um, is is a different topic, yeah. Okay, that's cool. And what do you think, um, actually, you're going to be doing in the next five years? What do you hope to accomplish? In the next five years, well, um, at the moment, <laughs> we are developing an, an engine um, for, for the moon missions. So as I said, we have two different um, vehicles. And the vehicles that is going to the moon has a cryogenic um, engine. And the first moon mission is actually planned for 2028. And by then we will need to have a functional functional engine that will bring us to the moon. And I'm pretty sure that I will work full-time within the next five years on, on that engine. So we already produced the first um, components for, for the engines for, for testing. So there were some in, injectors and um, thrust chamber um, components with um, Toolcraft. That was just the first start. But to answer your question, pretty surely next five years will be full time working on the on the engine development and um, pretty surely also on some other three D printed parts. At the moment, I'm actually the the only pure three uh, D printing guy, so <laughs> I'm very sure there will be a lot of different tasks coming in three D printing. A lot of new parts, a lot of new um, assemblies where we can actually identify new parts that we're going to produce but in the next five years i think it will be deep engine development okay okay that sounds very exciting maxi so maxi thank you so much for your time today <laughs> yeah thanks for having me yours max it was very great and an honor to to speak with you guys all right and max thanks for being here as well today no my pleasure thank you and thank you for listening this is another episode of the 3d pod have a great day You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.